Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And my name is Phineas Ellis. I'm the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. We have a really great episode today. Uh, between all the news about racial injustice, the presidential race, and the global pandemic, uh, a lot of folks may have missed something unprecedented happening in the startup world and that is the record number of companies going public via special purpose acquisition companies, better known as SPACs. There have been over 80 SPACs this year that have raised over $30 billion. Recent examples include DraftKings and Virgin Galactic. Investor groups create these SPACs or shell companies that go public and have basically two years to utilize at least 80% of the money to acquire a business or businesses which then become public. SPACs are considered a backdoor alternative to the traditional IPO process, otherwise known as an initial public offering. Our guest today is Philip Krim, the co-founder and CEO of Casper Sleep. Casper went public through an IPO earlier this year, and Philip is also the head of Tailwind Acquisition, which filed to raise $300 million as a blank check SPAC. So Philip, we're really excited to talk to you about these two topics today, IPOing and SPACs. There could not be a more perfect person to talk about both. Thanks for coming on the show. For anyone who's been living under a rock for the past five years, please introduce yourself and, and tell us about Casper. <laughs> uh, generous introduction. Uh, so my name is Philip Krem. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Casper. Uh, so super excited to talk about our journey there. We launched the business uh, April 22nd, 2014 and are working to build the world's first sleep company. Uh, and then also, uh, I'm a director of Tailwind, which is a, a SPAC, as you mentioned. And so Tailwind raised capital uh, several weeks ago, just before Labor Day weekend of 2020. Uh, so involved in that at a director level. But excited to talk about IPOs and SPACs and fundraising and all the, the fun parts of, of the gig. So we're going to start super high level and then zoom in. To start, again, our show's about startups for the most part. Can you talk about why companies go public? What is the value of IPOing if you're a startup? Yeah, so there's a number of reasons on why uh, companies want to and should go public at some point. And to me, you know, if you have a good business, it's really a question of when, not if. Uh, and, and I say that because you know, to me, I was always excited to, to take the company public. I think operating as a public company is kind of the highest standard you can hold your company or yourself to from an operating standard. Um, it's great for your employees because it gives them liquidity. They're able to sell their shares. Uh, it's great for your early investors who have made money with you along the way and they can generate liquidity. Uh, it's great for the company from a branding standpoint. Uh, again, it brings visibility, credibility. Uh, at the highest level within kind of the, the corporate echelons out there. And so I, I think there are a number of benefits. And at its core, it's, it's a way to raise money. And uh, it's a way to tell your story uh, to, to public investors who are a different class of investors. But it, it's a way to add incremental capital to your balance sheet and, and to continue to scale the business by giving it the fuel that it needs to grow. There are more ways to get public today than really ever before. And a lot of those ways have been uh, innovating along the way. So you have the traditional IPO path, which was the path that Casper took. Uh, you have SPACs, which you guys have mentioned a little bit. Uh, and then you also have direct listings. So you had companies like Palantir, uh, Spotify, and others use a direct listing to get public. All of this is a way to have your shares trade uh, on the open markets here in the US on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. 
and, and give you the benefits that we talked about on being public. There are some downsides though, so I'm also happy to talk about that. Yeah, take us to the downsides. Uh, yeah, so so uh, it, it is onerous for the company. There's the most onerous kind of reporting standards. You do have you know quarterly business updates that you have to provide to the street. You have to have public standards when it comes to auditing and controls and cyber protections and things like that. Um, you're also kind of marked every day about your business, and so anytime there's an update, you're you're getting a new mark on the business. That can be good and bad and, and have its ups and downs. And overall, it just adds kind of a, another layer that you have to manage, that you have to think about, that uh, the business has to deliver on. And so there's, there's certainly uh, additional complexities with the business once you're public. Can you talk about the timing of going public? You know, we are seeing a lot of companies staying private longer than expected. Warby Parker, Airbnb, and others are just extending their period for or delaying their potential IPO or the IPO that we hope or think is coming. Can you talk about timing and why companies like Warby Parker would stay private longer and what the right timing for companies like that or you all would be to go public? Yeah, you know, it's um, there, there's no hard and fast rule. And, and you're right, like companies are voting to stay private longer. Palantir was a private company for 14 years. I think Warby Parker is about 10 years old. And I think it's, it's just a function of kind of capital markets and what's going on. The private markets for growth stage companies has been robust and, and having strong valuations. For a while, it felt like there was actually a premium in the private markets versus the public markets. Although I would say that that's reversed. And I think that's part of why you're seeing a lot of companies go public right now is because it's a good time to tap the public markets. The markets um, are definitely valuing growth with a high multiple and high premium, arguably more so than private markets, although that's not always the case. And so I think when you look at the capital markets, broadly speaking, I think that's what drives some of the decisions around that. And then beyond kind of the analytical exercise of just valuations and premiums, it's also a very personal decision for the founders, for your investors, and for the board. And uh, some people like being in the, the kind of public market spotlight and, and want that kind of additional scrutiny to, again, just raise the bar on which you operate the company. Others want to stay in the private sector and, and not have that kind of additional focus on the business. Um, and some people are waiting for certain milestones in the business, you know, taking certain product lines to market, uh, reaching certain levels of profitability, et cetera. And the markets take different views on that over time. And so sometimes it's hard to, to have a single point of view because markets can ebb and flow based around you know, profitability or growth rates. And that will change valuations. It will change the reception of the business into the public markets. And so there's a lot of variables that you kind of have to keep in your mind. But again, you're, you're seeing a lot of companies go public right now because it's just a good time in the public markets to raise capital. They are valuing growth kind of above everything else. And you're seeing that in some of the multiples of some of these high growth companies. Uh, last year, you saw that sentiment kind of ebb and flow. You, you had a lot of excitement for Uber and Lyft to go public. Um, those didn't trade well out of the gate. Those had stories that were really about growth and TAM and less about profitability and unit economics. And the public investors you know, didn't love that. Uh, you then had Smile Direct and Peloton go out, and those didn't trade well out of the gates either. Um, and, and you saw sentiment change around high growth startups that weren't yet profitable. And then you had WeWork, which was its own kind of debacle, but definitely froze the public markets and changed the way that investors were thinking about, you know, late stage private rounds or public rounds. And so there's there's just always a, a lot of volatility. And, you know, today with COVID, it's, it's a different world. There are different businesses that people are looking for and doing well. You know, 
Peloton that had traded down as an IPO now is at $125 a share. And so, you know, investors are definitely seeing a a different world of of kind of winners and losers in this new economy and this new consumer setting. And so that's been a a reset for some companies and there are definitely some strong winners and some losers. Um, But, you know, again, things will evolve. And the one certainty is that markets will have volatility and it's easy to get complacent when we've had a run of, of, you know, several months of the markets being really strong. Um, but no doubt volatility will, will happen again and, and markets open and close all the time. And so that's where, you know, I, I talk a lot about internally and with other founders just about uh, like maintaining optionality and having as many options as you can, uh, I think is always a smart thing. So Casper was, and we talk about you a lot on this show because I think in many ways you guys were an, an outlier or are an outlier for sure in terms of how fast you grew. Uh, frankly, you guys were both a blessing and a curse for Burrow uh, because it created a lot of hype for a, like a consumer product brand in the in the home space, but it also became the new benchmark of what success looked like, um, which was impossible to, to meet. But anyways, you guys were a, a record growth, cash burning, super fun, very hyped, iconic consumer brand, and you wanted to go public. Take us through that decision process and what did you need to do to get buttoned up and become a public business? Yeah, the, the hardest job when you want to go public is really the CFO's job, more so than the CEO's job, I came to learn. It is a ton of work for the CFO and the finance org. And it definitely helps to have someone in seat who's been in or around the public markets for a long time. Uh, you know, it is a big lift by the bankers. It's a big lift by the accounting team, including, you know, the auditors. There's just a lot of people around the table that help you go public. But by far, the, the hardest part of it is is kind of the CFOs and the, the finance team's job around, you know, forecasting the business, describing the business, breaking down every piece of the business and working with the underwriters to kind of tell that story. Uh, so for us, we started really in earnest working on getting public in early 2019. And then it took us almost about a year before uh, there was alignment between the bankers. Internally, we were ready to go, but then we watched the markets and we watched what the bankers were telling us and uh, ultimately waited until February 2020 until things lined up and, and we were able to go out and, uh, and move forward with the IPO. Yeah. What was your, what was your thinking there? I know there was, you mentioned earlier between Uber and Lyft and WeWork, there was a lot of kind of turmoil in, in, in consumer IPOs. How did that change your approach? Yeah. So that, that's where it's kind of lining up the stars. Uh, we, we had some new products that we launched earlier in the year. So we wanted to get a little bit of traction with some new products and market. Uh, then the market reactions to certain companies uh, surprised us. And so we wanted to understand how, investor sentiment was going to settle. You know, the, the one that was by far the most aggressive was what happened to WeWork. And that, that pretty much shut down the market from uh, you know, Q3 2019 into Q1. And so we were really the first consumer startup uh, that tapped the public markets after WeWork. And that was, I think, part of why there was just so much negative sentiment out there around money losing startups and, and really a level of scrutiny that I've never seen um, around companies. And I, I think it's uh, it's always tough to be, you, you don't want to be like the last one in the market and you don't want to be the first one in the market when they open and shut because, you know, sentiment changes wildly. 
And I think that's something that we kind of dealt with on both ends. We, we were really one of the first consumer companies to go out post we work in that kind of money losing startup community. And, and so that was tough and we had to navigate that. And that's what made it, I think, a tough IPO. And then as soon as we were ready to kind of market the company and out of our quiet period, uh, COVID started to hit. And so, you know, no one wanted, you know, we, we, we had much bigger problems to worry about than investor relations. And so we, we, you know, we, we had good timing in the sense that we added close to $100 million to our balance sheet. And that was great because it let us uh, navigate COVID with a bit more certainty that, you know, we were, we were well capitalized to, to navigate that crisis. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a difficult time to be in the public markets when no one's focused on you or your business because there are just bigger things going on. And so that's something that we're still dealing with is just how to to kind of get people to pay attention to us and, and understand that our business is doing well. We've performed well this year, but you know, it's, it's a different game in, in the public markets than it is in the private markets when it comes to investor relations and how you, you talk to potential investors. Internally during that IPO process, what did you have to do from a team perspective, cultural perspective? Like what, what goes on behind the scenes? What are you telling your employees? Yeah. You know, it, it's a, uh, it was, tough for us because of just the amount of press and scrutiny and and you you can't say anything back in the press because you're under your quiet period with the sec and so we had to explain to the company that it's basically you know again for us it was like being in a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back and you're just getting punched in the face and can't do anything about it and you also you know internally just have to be careful about what you say just again knowing that that there's so much scrutiny on you in the business and so it was definitely a you know a challenging time for the employees and a challenging time for us because we we were just so in the spotlight and and really the only company trying to to go public during that period that i recall it, it was tough and and we tried to communicate as much as we could and we tried to be as transparent about what was going on in the process um, a lot of it is things that we didn't know either, though, uh, that we were figuring out in real time as we navigated the process. You know, I'd never taken a company public before. So, you know, we, we were communicating as much as we could. And, you know, it was tough. But ultimately, getting public was a huge milestone for us. Like I said, it added some new capital to the balance sheet. It's, it's a huge milestone for any company. And so it was definitely a celebratory uh, event and, and milestone. But what we had said all along was, it's really just the beginning of the next chapter of our journey. And now we have to go perform. And so we're, we're, we're raising the bar even more. And, and now we have to go deliver on what we said we were going to do. Did you have to make any hires? And then I know, I know you built out your board more. I assume that's pretty typical prior to going public. You want to build out your boards. What's the thought process there? Yeah, you have to. So you have to be a majority of independents on the board um, in order to be a public company. Independence meaning? Meaning uh, like they're not an officer of the company and then certain investors can qualify as independent investors and certain investors might not qualify as independent, but you have to have the majority of your board be a truly independent board based on New York Stock Exchange and SEC rules or NASDAQ rules in order to have the proper governance in place to go public. So that's one of the you know, must haves. You must have audits, you must have an independent board, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so yeah, we, we added four great directors to our board kind of in the 12 months leading up to the IPO. That's definitely one of the most important things that you have to work on. And, and the more in advance you're working on that, the better, I think. So there's a lot of aspects uh, and outcomes, it sounds like when it go, comes to going public. From, from the decision point, in early 2019 or when you started that process to to today when you look back on it 
what parts of it would you say lived up to your expectations? Which parts didn't? Um, the amount of lift a traditional IPO is, especially for a company at our age and scale, is tremendous. Like it, it is hugely distracting for a lot of people in the org and for a lot of people that are running the business. So it, it is just all consuming. And then the amount of uncertainty around timing uh, was something I, I didn't appreciate. You're, you're kind of in ready weight mode for a long time depending on what's going on in the markets. And, and that's not always the case, right? Like, so the window has been great right now. And so if you were preparing for, you know, to go public anytime mid this year, you're probably good and hit your window and, and there were no hiccups. But for us, there were a lot of hiccups. And so it was a lot of just ready weight mode, which just meant that the lift for the organization was that much heavier. You know, like I said, the, the work for the CFO is just tremendous. And for the finance team is, is tremendous. And, and it's just, constant effort and everything has to be perfect. And there's a lot of people reviewing it, you know, multiple sets of lawyers, multiple bankers. Uh, and so there's just a lot of scrutiny and a lot of work on everything and, and you want it all to be perfect. So I, you know, the amount of lift I think was the most surprising thing to me is just, you know, how much work it is to, to get ready for the public round. And, you know, that, that's where I think some of the alternatives going on right now are interesting. I, I think going public through a SPAC is a much different process. It's much lighter lift because you have a, a counterparty to work with. Um, I think for some companies, direct listings do make a lot of sense. If, if you have, you know, a deep market, uh, if you have a deep uh, cap table, a big market cap, you know, or, or a business that people get, I think direct listings are, are interesting. And I think for some companies, you know, they're, they're big enough or they're mature enough where the IPO process, they were preparing to operate as a public company for long enough before where it's not as big of a lift and you know, that they can absorb it by throwing resources at it. Um, so that's why I think it's great that there's more and more options to, to get public for companies. And I, I think they all have their you know, pros and cons. And I think they all have companies that they're right for. And so I'm excited to see innovation starting to happen in the equity capital markets because I don't think there has been innovation there for a long time. It's a perfect transition, but I'm not going to go there just yet. I've got one more question to round out this section. My question is, if you've been in this environment for the last 10 years, I think there's some somewhat of a Mount Rushmore of notable consumer brands in New York City that have been talked about more than any other, right? Those are Warby Parker, maybe Glossier, and Casper is absolutely one of those. Can you talk a little bit about the perception of Casper and what it's been like to be at the head of this company over the years and experience the massive amount of fanfare and massive amount of scrutiny. Seems like every week there's another story of somebody saying something about Casper. Like there and that's, you know, the first through the gate gets bloody or the first through the gate gets all the all the fame. But I think you've are such an acute example of weathering all sorts of ups and downs publicly, regardless of what that, what's actually happening at your company. Can you speak a little bit to that experience? Because I think it's probably something that all of our listeners are like, oh yeah, I know so much about Casper. Everyone has speculated about Casper and a lot of these companies, but I think it's a testament to being first and being a company that people care about. Can you speak to that experience as a founder? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you guys know this, like to, to be a, a founder, an entrepreneur means you, you have to be resilient. You have to have thick skin. Like things don't always go your way in business and things don't always go the way you want it to go when it comes to, you know, building anything from scratch. And, and I think that's the, the case with kind of our perception as well. You know, we, we certainly benefited from a, a spotlight in our early days and that was key to growing the business as fast as we grew it. 
uh, and then the pendulum swung and, and we had to deal with people that were negative on it. And I think that happens with a lot of great companies. And, and we talk a lot about how you look at any generational company that's, you know, where they are today, they all have their ups and downs. And that includes Apple and Amazon and just the, the greatest companies out there all had periods of time where people were, were scrutinizing them. The stocks got crushed, you know, we're on the verge of bankruptcy, et cetera. Um, but the, the key is to stay perseverant and, and remember the North Star, which, you know, we all got together. People joined Casper from day one to today because they want to build the world's first sleep brand. And, uh, you know, for being a founder and, and, you know, trying to be a leader of the company, sometimes the, the noise can be, you know, depressing, upsetting. Um, sometimes it, it can feel great. But, you know, we, we talked about how for great companies, the pendulum slings from time to time. and you know, we, we just have to stay focused on the, the, the North Star that we are building with the company and, and be good leaders through the good and bad. And, you know, let people know that we're never as smart as we are on, on the best days and we're never as dumb as, as we are on the worst days. And uh, we just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And if we do that, then, then I think we will end up in a great place. And it's, it's funny that there's a quote, I think, that was like Benjamin Graham just about the stock market too. Like in any given day, it's a voting machine, but over the long term, it's a weighing machine. Meaning that if we keep building a great company over time, everything else will take care of itself. And that's the same with being a private company as well. Like, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to make good hires and bad hires. You're going to launch great products and not so great products. You're going to do things that make the brand seem amazing. And you're going to do things that, you know, no one cares about. But the, the you know, facts, of the matter is you just got to keep keep focused and keep pushing forward and as long as you have that determination i think that's what's key and, and when we look at the founders that i admire and the ceos that i admire they, they all went through periods of adversity and they just uh were able to kind of push forward and and you know help the team the company get through tough times in order to enjoy the better times and so i, I think you know pendulum swing on on all companies and we're grateful when it's positive and when people are, are talking about how great our products are or how great our team is. And when it's negative, we, you know, try to ignore the noise and, and just stay focused. The spotlight is, is a double-edged sword for sure. Definitely. In hindsight, do you, do you wish it wasn't as bright to, to dull some of the, the negative side, but also pass up some of the positives too? You know, I, just me personally, like I don't spend time thinking about like what could have or should have happened, what would have been like if this or that happened. You know, it is what it is and, and we are where we are, meaning like we have a business that's a big business that's growing fast, that's changed the way millions of people sleep through the night and buy, you know, sleep products. And, uh, you know, I think hopefully if you look back at the history of sleep and, and of mattresses, Casper made a indelible mark and and we're, we're just getting going like you look at these generational brands we admire they're built over decades we're six and a half years into it so you know we're, we're gonna keep putting one foot in front of the other and you know I, I really don't spend much time lamenting about things that could have been different in the past do critics today of your business do they have valid concerns that you as a business need to figure out or are you guys going to make these people look stupid 10 years from now because they just couldn't see the bigger vision <laughs> Um, I guess I would probably say a little of both. Like, um, you always have valid concerns in a, a company that has a vision, meaning we talk about what we want to build, not what we are today. I mean, what we are today, we're very proud of, but, 
you know, any high growth company that wants to, to build something great is never saying we're done, like, let's wave the flag. And so there's always concern about can we deliver on what we say we're going to deliver. To that end, I have high, a high degree of confidence that we're, we're a, a great team, that the team's never been stronger and more focused. And, and so I'm really excited about some of the folks uh, that have joined us this year and joined a team that's been really amazing over the last uh, several years. And so I'm super excited about the, the future of Casper. And I, I think we are building a, a generational brand and business. I think we are going to change the way that people think about buying sleep products and experiencing a better night of sleep. And I'm super proud of the work that the team has done over the last six and a half years. But I, I think the next six and a half years are going to be even more amazing when you think about the number of customers that we're able to, to impact uh, when it comes to getting a better night of sleep. So we uh, we're very excited by the future and uh, we'll see how, how the history books write the story uh, over the next 10 years. Okay. We're going to pivot to SPACs. When Steven told me that we were going to have you on the show, I was like, uh, super exciting. Here's a bunch of questions I'm thinking. And he's like, I'm, we're going to have him on the show. We have to talk about SPACs. And in my head, I'm like, I think I read about that. I'm the guy that's been under the rock <laughs> with SPACs, clearly. And I've since done my research, but for a novice like me, can you start by just giving a brief overview of what SPACs are in your words? Sure. So to me, a SPAC is uh, basically a, a company formed to make an investment into another company. So you raise money from public investors the SPAC is a public entity and the whole point of existence for the SPAC is to go find another company to merge with. And that merger gives that target company the benefit of your cash that you raise, plus the benefit of being public now by merging into a public entity. Um, and so there's, there's kind of two big considerations when you're thinking about, you know, a SPAC combination. It's, you know, do you have the right partners to merge with and to, to partner with and being a public company? and then you know, are, are you raising capital at the right valuation that's going to set you up for success? But ultimately, a SPAC is just a, another way for a, a company to raise capital. It comes with the benefit or burden of being public, depending on your lens with that. And so it's, uh, it's, it's been super interesting to be deeper into that space. So you started a SPAC and it's called? Uh, so I didn't start a SPAC. I, I joined as a director. The, I'm a director of a SPAC called Tailwind. Um, the CEO is uh, a venture investor that was a Series A investor in Casper, Chris Hollid. Uh, the CFO is a uh, private equity investor who I've known, uh, Matt Ebby. Um, and then there are several other directors on the board. Um, and so got it. Um, our, our job is just to help the SPAC connect with great companies and great founders um, that have great businesses and are ready to raise another slug of capital and are ready to be public companies. So the money that gets raised for in a SPAC, if you merge with a company, does that money go on the company's balance sheet? Is that used to to buy out the owners of the company? How does that work? Could be either. Um, SPACs, you generally have more flexibility with capital than a traditional IPO. I think most of the SPAC activity you're seeing are, is adding that capital to the balance sheets and it being part of the, the primary fundraise, but you definitely have the flexibility to use it as secondary for either the founders or your early investors if they want to cash out some some equity. So it can be thought of as another way of raising capital, but then at the completion of the transaction, both parties are part of this 
public entity. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting vehicle because it has a few different elements. But you know, the way I talk about it is it's most akin to a late stage private round. You have a counterparty, you're negotiating with that counterparty, terms of a fundraise, all the things that you would negotiate in a late stage private fundraise. But it also has elements of, of other things. So it has elements of an M&A agreement because that's what it is at the end of the day. You're merging two companies and so you negotiate a full definitive merger agreement. And it has elements of an IPO because you're also taking a company public through the merger. And so you do have to think about equity capital markets and how the street is going to value the business and what it's going to be like to have public shareholders now. And so it's, it's complicated in that regard. It's, it's a complicated transaction. Um, but at the end of the day, like I, I would say, start with it as thinking about it as a late stage private round. And if you were looking for late stage private capital and also think you're ready to be a public company, then a SPAC definitely could be the right vehicle for you. And so there, there's such thing as a, a blank check SPAC, right? Which is, that's what you're a part of, or you don't even know necessarily which company you're going to acquire at some point. Tell us about that. Yeah, so all SPACs are blank checks. So you're not allowed to raise a SPAC if you have a deal negotiated with a target. So that's SEC rules. So you, you have to go out and, uh, and start conversations after you have the money in the bank. And so every SPAC that, that's raised capital then starts uh, to go look for deals once you raise the capital. Got it. And so if I'm a company that is considering a SPAC, I can do that, but then I'm going out and talking to SPACs that already exist as the potential investors. That's right. You you would be focusing on SPACs that are already funded and trading on the New York or NASDAQ stock exchanges. So why why would a couple, what are the pros and cons to going public through an IPO versus a SPAC? Is this something that you guys considered? We did consider it. And that was part of why I was uh, excited to join a SPAC. I think SPACs are a better way for a lot of companies to get public. And I say this just firsthand, looking at a SPAC and deciding to stay on the IPO process. And going back to what we talked about earlier, like the IPO process is a huge lift for a company at our age and, and scale. And SPACs are a lighter lift because you have a counterparty that's doing some of the work that you need to do to get ready to be public. Um, so when you go public through a SPAC, you, you don't have to file an S1. The SPAC did that. And so there's less work with the SEC. You also have a team that's coming in to help you with it. And that team is all compensated around equity. So everyone is aligned on just setting the business up for long-term success. And so I think that's one of the clear benefits of a SPAC is that you're uh, working with other folks all aligned on equity to help make sure that you're set up for long-term success. On one of the negatives of the SPAC, uh, is that there's a sponsor that gets paid to do this. So the sponsor dilution comes into effect. And so, you know, there's various people in the middle of any transaction. And in the SPAC, you have a sponsor as opposed to investment bankers. And you're able to price deals differently. And you're able to do different things. You could combine companies, things like that. And I think also the sponsors often have real value in the business that you're looking to, to partner with. And so if there's value there, then I think the, the dilution that comes with it is worth it. Obviously, I'm biased on the SPAC side, but that's what the founder needs to think about. Uh, you know, what I tell founders, if you're thinking about a SPAC, is talk about certainty to close and dilution. And if you get comfortable with the math on the dilution, uh, knowing who the partner is on the other side, uh, and you're comfortable that the deal is going to close, then it could be the right vehicle for you. So in researching before this interview, all of the articles say Casper founder and CEO launches SPAC. Right. It doesn't, and you're just, you said that you're just the director, right? So it's, I think it's first and foremost interesting that 
your name is in the in the masthead. Does that suggest that whatever company you choose, once that merger happens, is the expectation that you personally will oversee the operations of the business or co-lead the business? Or do you operate more as a board member or advisor? So uh, a couple of things. One, keep in mind, we did zero press for the SPAC. So the headlines are- People love Casper. People love Casper. Anytime they can get a a piece (laughs) of it, they want to put it in the news. I tell you, that's why why I asked the question earlier. It's it's a great board. Uh, It's a great management team. It's a great set of advisors. We listed our advisors in the S1. So it's all a group of operators, entrepreneurs, and investors in the high growth ecosystem. And what is also great about the SPAC product is you can end up putting together the deal in a very bespoke way for whatever the company is solving for. So no matter what, I'm not going to get involved in the operations of the company. I am fully focused on Casper, running Casper day to day. So, so, uh, and we, we made it clear, we're not looking to step into the operations of a business at all. But what we do want to do is help the company transition into the public uh, markets. And so that could be whatever the company needs. So, you know, like we had talked about earlier, the company needs an independent board. If there are people on Tailwind's board that makes sense for the target company's board, then great. They, they might have the option to join the board if the founder or CEO wants them. Otherwise, we could just open up our networks and help find the right board. Um, and so it's really just uh, trying to understand what the company wants help with. If it's you know talking about how to scale a DTC business and, and you know, work on branding and online marketing. Great. You know, I, I'm happy to help just like I would help any of my friends with, you know, what they're doing in their business. And, you know, that's something I've always enjoyed doing. It's, it's why I love the New York city tech scene and, and the, the entrepreneurial world that we operate in. It's just uh, everyone's out there to, for the most part, help each other build great businesses and, and change the way that, you know, people live their lives. Um, and so to me, it's just an extension of being able to do that at, at more scale and, and you know later stage than most of the the work that I've done in that world. Super interesting. I, I'm I'm really happy. I, I feel like that was a really good overview of SPACs for folks. That's really helpful. Before we wrap, what's been the most uh, exciting part of the of the Casper journey? I know founders in your position have typically have some like wild stories from something at some point in time. What's been the most exciting one for you? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. I don't like, it's easy to look back and think about the most recent milestone, which, you know, going public was amazing. It was a huge milestone. It was a great event. It was awesome. But I also like, I remember signing our seed term sheet with Ben Lear at Lear Hippo Ventures. And that was the greatest moment at that point in time. And then, you know, meeting Tony Florence at NEA, who was our series A investor and seeing how excited he got. And, and he's, legendary uh as you know steven like because he's built great companies he's partnered with mark laurie and and you know meeting an, an investor like that is just awesome and and then him seeing our vision and getting excited and having him want to work with us amazing milestone you know cr- crossing a million customers uh, you know amazing to think that we've had that kind of impact on people's lives uh launching the business uh internationally huge milestone so it's, it's you know it's it's been wild just every step of the way. And I think that's why I love the job is like every, every chapter you're learning something new and something different and experiencing something that is unique. And, and I think that's why I love it. And that's why I'm excited for the future. Cause I know we're just going to keep doing things that are interesting and, and unique and challenging and, and areas where I, I get to learn a lot. And 
uh, always mixing it up. That's awesome. Uh, well, Philip, it, it was amazing having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Last dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>